Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, and I'm also the chief strategist of Perch Perspectives. Uh, Before we dive into this week's episode, a little bit of a housekeeping note from me. Um, As many of you know, and as we've announced, uh, I've joined CI as a partner and as the director of geopolitical analysis. And one of the things that we're doing is we are greatly expanding the offerings for the podcast. Uh, We're rebranding the podcast from the Perch Pod into the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. And in addition to the bi-weekly conversations that you've become used to, we're adding a lot of other exciting content like deep dive, long form narrative episodes on particular geopolitical issues, uh, also a weekly market update with our chief investment officer, uh, Rob Laherty, and lots of other things that we have in store. Um, In order to access that, though, I need you to do a couple things for me. The first thing is, if you haven't already, please go sign up for the Cognitive Dissidents podcast feed. That's where all of these episodes are going to live. We'll still be posting on the Perch Pod through the end of the summer, the full episodes, but if we get to the end of the summer, we're only going to post trailers. You're going to have to go to Cognitive Dissidents to get all the good news stuff. Second of all, I asked you all to do this with the Purge Pod, and you did. It's one of the reasons we've had so much success and have been able to expand the podcast. But please, if you could take a minute to rate the podcast or even review it on whatever podcast app you're listening to, it would be hugely helpful for us. If you want to really do us a solid, get your friends and family to do it too. They don't even technically have to be a listener, but the more ratings and reviews we have, the better it is for us. Uh, It is my goal to keep this podcast ad-free, requiring no subscriptions, anything like that. And it's doing those small things that just take a few seconds of your time that really help us get there. So please sign up for the Cognitive Dissidents podcast if you haven't already. If you have, thank you so much and consider leaving us a rating and a review for the Cognitive Dissidents podcast, even if you already have for the Perch Pod. So thank you so much, and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, joining me on the podcast today, we recorded on June 8th. This will come out in about a week or two. There's nothing really dated in here, but we're recording on June 8th. Um, I'm actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts today. Uh, we were recording with Kamran Bukhari, who is in Washington, D.C., and is the Director of Analytical Development at the New Lines Institute. He has been a guest on this podcast numerous times. Uh, I'm also continue to be honored to call Kamran a friend where we were a colleague in a past life at Stratfor and at Geopolitical Futures, and now we are friends uh, in geopolitics, always connecting from around the world. Um, Kamran had some really, really great insights. He was on fire today. I'm, I'm biased, but uh, you, you got Kamran at his best. So Kamran, thank you so much for taking the time. Listeners, thank you so much for liking what we do and and uh, you know giving us the support we need to keep going forward. So cheers. We will see you out there. Kamran, it's so great to have you back. Uh, it's been too long, my friend. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was six months ago that you and I had a phone conversation, and I don't recall the date when I last did a Perch Pod, but it's always fun to do these. Yeah. Uh, well, we actually, so it's Perch Pod, but we also have a new name called, because uh, I've been moving over to Cognitive Investment. So actually, we're, we're rebranding to Cognitive Dissidents. Um, which is an, which is which I think is a fun name, but we're cross posting on Perch Pod too. So um, nice to have you on whatever podcast we're doing in the first place. Um, so we're going to end by talking about the Russia Ukraine war and some broader global things. But first, Kamran, I want to hit a couple things with you that I know you're an expert in. And the first is I want to talk to you about Kazakhstan. You just published a great long piece, uh, I believe, for the Kennan Institute. Is that correct? Yes, at the Wilson um, Center at the Wilson Center. We'll put a link to the report um, in the notes for this podcast if you want to read it. Um, 
I've, I've actually only read kind of the first uh, 10 pages or so, um, but it's really good so far. Why don't you just, um, what, what, let's start with why did you want to write about Kazakhstan? What about Kazakhstan has been interesting to you and what is the main point of, of the piece that you wrote? So, yeah, um, look, the, the main point of the piece was that uh, Eurasia is being subjected to all sorts of uh, turbulence, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the war in Ukraine and its effects blowing um, eastwards. You have uh, China pushing aggressively westwards. Uh, on the southern rim of this region, uh, you have a re-Talibanized Afghanistan that's radiating um, instability, insecurity, at the very least uncertainty into this region. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Iran uh, looking at this region and eyeing it. The Turks are doing more than eyeing. Uh, they are actually pushing in both from the South Caucasus and through Afghanistan. Um, and uh, there is also, you know, by extension, Pakistan, which is uh, spinning out of control. And so uh, from a strategic point of view, how does the United States deal with, you know, this heart of Eurasia uh, and, 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 you know, deal with all these problems, whether it's Russia-related, China-related, or anything else. And it's one of those regions where the United States historically has had a very, very light, faint footprint. Um, and so, and and there is a, uh, a history uh, with Kazakhstan starting in 1991 that I saw as something to build upon. Uh, the, uh, the energy investments, the efforts to denuclearize or do nuclear non-proliferation with Kazakhstan giving up weapons and the U.S. involvement with that. Um, and then just sort of the way that uh, Kazakhstan has uh, emerged both domestically and on the foreign policy front. So I saw all these pieces and I said, why is it that the United States is not paying more attention to Kazakhstan uh, even though it, it has this, you know, this this precedent, and the Kazakhs are willing to become partners, uh, and that is the point that I'm trying to make here: is that we we have a history; it can be built upon. And why aren't we doing it? Because we need it. If we're going to deal with China, if we're going to deal with Russia, uh, we need to be able to have this relationship with Kazakhstan, and that was sort of the whole purpose behind jumping on this project to write this report. Yeah, let me play devil's advocate a little bit on two major points. The first one I want to ask you about is, um, obviously, before the Russia-Ukraine war in January, Kazakhstan had major political protests, and the Russians rolled into Kazakhstan and basically subdued them and went home. They probably, I, I wonder if what they did in Kazakhstan made them overconfident that they were going to be able to treat Ukraine in much the same way. Um, isn't there a close relationship between this Kazakh government and the Russian government? Is Kazakhstan going to be a version of Belarus where it's looking to Russia as the power that guaranteed um, that government going forward? Are they more pragmatic than that? Talk to me a little bit about what happened in January and how that affects the, the point you made about U.S.-Kazakh cooperation. Excellent question. And there are two parts to it in, in terms of how I, I, I will respond. Number one is, is the domestic situation. So look, you know, when we deal with a country like Kazakhstan, when I say that Kazakhstan is, shows promise, uh, it can be a, a, a decent partner for the United States. I am not assuming that this place doesn't have its problems. It does have its problems. Every place that we work with has its problems. 
And this is a place where, you know, again, we have not engaged with it uh, like we've engaged Latin America, uh, like we've engaged even Africa, uh, much less the Middle East, and then, of course, um, East Asia. So, and, and, and of course, you know, there is the, the, the deep connections with Europe. So this isn't like that. So as based on that, you have to assume there are going to be problems. And then there's change coming. There's transformation coming, uh, happening uh, that has been happening for many years in Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, the founding president, uh, was 80 years old. He had to pass the baton, but he wanted to hold on to power. Uh, and while he shared some of it with the new president, uh, Mr. Tokayev, and therefore that creates issues. You know, you want to hold on to power, but the country needs to move forward. And with economic prosperity and with Kazakhstan engaging the world and increasingly engaging the world, it's people going overseas and getting educated. They, that has implications. And that implication is most obvious uh, when we look at what happened in the winter unrest in January. People have mm -hmm. expectations that they're going to have a greater say in how the country is governed politically and economically. So uh, those are going to those problems are going to be there. Uh, but I think that though that unrest did not alter the trajectory that Kazakhstan has been on, and I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, first, uh, to go back to the Russian. Uh, you know, uh, intervention, uh, which was five days long. So mm -hmm. if you take one day to send in troops, there were only about 2,500 troops. Uh, a majority of them were Russians, some Belarusians and, you know, uh, from other CSTO nations. It was a small task force. Uh, it was not allowed to engage uh, the rioters or the protesters. It was mainly to guard uh, government facilities and, uh, you know, expand the bandwidth of Kazakh security forces as they d dealt with quelling uh, the violence. I mean, there, were, there was the genuine protest that they had to deal with, but then there was an intra-elite feud going on that manifested itself with the use of weapons, with the use, uh, with, you know, with violence, you know, arson uh, and, and, and all that activity that we saw. So, that was not done by the Russians, and if you and so if if you have if you were in and out in five days, it takes you one day to bring in through your you know uh, you know drop in there through your transport aircraft, and then one day to you know depart. So you were on the ground for roughly three days or something like that. So that was ver it was very clear that that was more symbolic. My argument is, and this is something I wrote in a Wall Street Journal piece this past Sunday, that that was more of a signaling on the part of uh, the elite around Tukayev, let's just call them the new guard, and uh, signaling to the old guard who didn't want to give up power that Russia is not going to support their efforts to hold on to power. The other thing is we have to assume that uh, Putin was already you know, gearing up to fight in Ukraine uh, because this is a month away uh, a month yeah. before uh, a the, the war in Ukraine. From his point of view, this is the last thing he wants to see, like a colored revolution taking place on his rear flank while he's dealing with, uh, you know, the geopolitical effects of uh, the Maidan uprising in 2014 that really flipped Ukraine towards the West. 
So mm-hmm. he's trying to claw that back. He has this problem. That would explain why it was only five days. So I, I think there's a misunderstanding here of what the Russian role was. If I had to sort of guess, I would say that Putin said, you know what? I'm so glad this isn't so bad as we thought. Now I can go back and focus on the war in Ukraine or mm-hmm. the war that he intended in Ukraine at that point in time. So I think there are problems. There are always going to be problems. We, we, we tend to, when we in the West want to look at or measure progress towards political economic development and reform or, or democratization uh, or market reforms, we uh, skip the incremental parts or the stages. We look at it as an endpoint or an end state and as a condition as opposed to a process. And therefore, we don't get impressed and we're always worried about, uh, you know, yes, there are human rights violations. Yes, you know, they're being very incremental in terms of how they are, uh, you know, extending people uh, the ability to participate in in the politics of the country, but that's a given. I mean, you know, that's that's the that's the non-linear, slow, uncertain path from a very from a Soviet system uh, or a post-Soviet system towards something resembling a more free political system or a relatively more free political system. And it's a process. It's going to take years. Does that mean mm-hmm. that we wait for them to mature and then we go and do business with them? The, you know, the universe would have collapsed by then. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think you've killed that devil. Let me raise another devil's advocate though. So to, to steal a Churchillian phrase, um, why shouldn't the United States just let Central Asia, Asia stew in its own juice? Which is to say the United States only just after way too long, got out of Afghanistan, realizing that it really couldn't do anything there or assert itself in any meaningful way, isn't would would it not be better for the United States to just let Russia and India and Pakistan and the Taliban and China all square off against each other and keep each other busy and annoy each other, and for the United States just to sort of take a step back and say, great, like here here's an area where Russia and China will not be on the same page. Here's an area where um, all the things that are happening in Afghanistan that hurt U.S. interests actually help U.S. interests because it's going to prevent any one power from dominating the region. Tell me why that's not the smart geopolitical approach. Well, for a number of reasons. Number one is that as the Russian footprint is receding from this region, the Chinese are filling that vacuum. Uh, For all the, you know, the the big deal that we make about, you know, how China is becoming a major maritime power and is going to challenge us in, you know, uh, in the Western Pacific and so on and so forth. If you look at where the Chinese have put their money, that's in BRI, it's on land. And there's a report today in Bloomberg quoting the Sri Lankan leader saying that China is no longer interested in the Indian Ocean. It's paying more attention to Southeast Asia and Africa. Uh, And, you know, he said it's because their, you know, investments have not paid off. They put, you know, tens of billions in Pakistan. Uh, That's a basket case. Sri Lanka just defaulted uh, not too long ago. And so the whole, uh, you know, Pearl, uh, string of pearl strategy uh, isn't going anywhere. So China is going is a land power. They know how to build infrastructure, transportation corridors. Uh, we have ample evidence of that, and we would just be allowing China a free reign. Now, yes, the Taliban are there, uh, or a Taliban Emirate 2.0. The Pakistanis <laughs> are there. The Indians are there. The Indians are blocked. You know, there's a massive Pakistan that stands between them and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So they're still figuring out how to get back into Afghanistan. 
uh, one that is ruled by the Taliban, even though the Taliban last uh, week, uh, you know, gave an interview um, this. Of all people, the son of Mullah Omar, Mullah Yaqub, who is the defense minister, gave an interview to an Indian television channel saying, we want good relations with India. So <laughs> they want good relations. Can they have them? That's a separate thing. So India is not there. India is already, you know, behind in terms of competition with China. Um, the Iranians have a lot of hoops to go through before they can play and they will play Uh but, you know, that remains to be seen. Currently, they're fortifying and solidifying their position uh, in Afghanistan, and they're going to use that as a jumping off point. The Turks are there, but they're cut off, uh, you know, spatially speaking, and they're still sort of, uh, you know, waiting to see how Russia, uh, what becomes of Russia and, and how they will uh, proceed. So in this sort of environment, do, I don't think the United States can just sort of be the observer or spectator and let things stew because it will lead to China having a, a bigger footprint and uh, we will be without options. Uh, and I think that that it alone for me uh, means that we need to change strategy. As for Afghanistan, look. It, we're not gonna. We're not gonna win wars. We, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan have demonstrated that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a presence, having influence, diplomacy, strengthening the Kazakhs so they can wean off of. They're already weaning off of the Russians. Can we accelerate that process? Can yeah. we make sure that they, uh, you know, they are able to resist Chinese, you know, the creeping Chinese footprint? Yeah, although part of me thinks we should make them more dependent on the Russians so that Russia and China will fight. But I, I take your point. The The last thing on Kazakhstan I want to ask before we move on to some other pockets of the world is um, is is a tighter U.S. relationship with Kazakhstan mutually exclusive with a relationship with Uzbekistan? Can the United States have good relations with both of those countries? Um, or is the United States going to have to pick one? And I ask because in my mind, Uzbekistan is arguably the more strategic country in the region because it's really the the connective tissue that makes Central Asia work. If you don't have Uzbekistan, you can have Kazakhstan, but there's a limited amount of strategic benefit if, if Uzbekistan is opposing Kazakhstan. So is Uzbekistan on board with this? Is this part of the calculation? Do you think the U.S. can have both good relations with both sides? Or does it have to worry that the Uzbeks will start getting suspicious if, if they see the U.S. trying to strengthen Kazakhstan? So I think that uh, the Uzbeks, uh, you know, understand their position there uh, in the region. Uh, they understand that Kazakhstan is the natural leader uh, because of its size, because of its wealth, because of its influence. Uh, I mean, just the fact that Kazakhstan is only 19 million people with a wide geography and a lot of resources at its disposal versus uh, Uzbekistan, which is 35 million people, much smaller geography, far fewer resources, a border with Afghanistan, and, you know, that very complicated and tortured frontier that, you know, sinks the Fergana Valley with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, mm -hmm. uh, and Turkmenistan is just, you know, the neighbor to the south uh, with yeah. a new leader. So the Uzbeks would welcome a U.S. attention, and I think there's enough sort of a, a regional connectivity, if you will, uh, intra-regional connectivity, at least between the Uzbeks and the Kazakhs, because they're the, the, the two big powers uh, in the region, that 
I think this will work. I don't think the Uzbeks are going to be upset at this. Obviously, they want to know what's in it for them. How does how do they benefit from it? And uh, the U.S. cannot achieve its strategic goals with just limiting itself to Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is just sort of like, you know, that uh, it's better prepared to partner, not to say that the Uzbeks can't, but I think that you can't stop it at Kazakhstan. You'll have to build uh, up your relationship with Uzbekistan and the other stands as well to the extent that it is possible. Now, we can't get ahead of ourselves. Uh, That's why I say first Kazakhstan. Because it is at a point in its development, and it has shown willingness to uh, an interest to to partner with the United States in a far greater way than we've already done in in, mm-hmm. in since you know we recognized our independence in 1991. I think I might disagree with you that the Kazakhs are the natural leader of the region. I, I I'm more sympathetic to Uzbekistan as being the the leader, but I I take your point there. It's all well said. Let's um let's move away from Kazakhstan for a second though, because those population figures are a great segue into the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is Pakistan. Um, and I am, to be frank, embarrassed about my lack of insight or awareness about Pakistan, because we're talking about a country with over 200 million people with nuclear weapons um, that really shapes a lot of things um, in the Indo-Pacific that I don't think we talk about nearly enough. And I certainly don't talk about near enough. There's a lot of talk about India, and we just sort of forget that there's a 200 million uh, person Pakistan sitting right next door. Um, you're obviously from Pakistan. Um, you've thought about it a lot, and there's been a lot of turmoil there in general. Um, so tell me, where should we where should we start with explaining to the listeners what's happening in, in Pakistan right now? Because it feels like there's some pretty major political changes and that Pakistan is one of these countries that is going to be particularly exposed to higher energy prices and higher food prices, and that we're already seeing that in the political unrest that's happening. So I think that we're at a point where Pakistan is in uncharted waters. You know, Pakistan has always been problematic uh, going back decades, uh, but it's never been this bad. And I'll tell you why. Number one is that the economy has hit rock bottom. Uh, The reserves are, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight billion right now, uh, which covers roughly one month of imports. Uh, the price of energy has gone up. Uh, the exchange rate with the dollar, you know, the, the rupee has gone beyond 200 uh, rupees to a dollar. I heard yesterday that it could go as big uh, as high as 250. Uh, inflation is, is going through the roof. Uh, and the last four years have been, uh, you know, basically quite destabilizing. Uh, for Pakistan in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, In 2018, uh, Imran Khan and his political party were brought to power by the military establishment through a careful, uh, if you will, electoral and engineering campaign. Mm. Uh, And uh, not that the military hasn't done this in the past, but this time around, it was thought that this is it. This is the partner, the civilian partner that the military has created that it has no differences with. And and there was this, uh, quote, same page, unquote, uh, you know, reference time and again given that, you know, the civilians and the military for the first time in the history of the country are on the, quote, same page. Uh, and that was repeated over and over again. It was openly referred to as a hybrid regime in the, you know, in the official discourse. And so, 
things were looking great. You know, uh, the civil military tensions, at least from the point of view of the military, had been resolved. And all those, uh, you know, rowdy civilians who did not follow the lead of the military, whether they were uh, from the uh, party of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif or from the assassinated leader and former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, they had been uh, set aside. But the problem was that Imran Khan did not perform and his party you know, tanked in terms of its performance to manage the economy because, quite frankly, Imran Khan uh, did not lead, led a social movement, a social movement that was against corruption, uh, very idealistic, uh, big promises being made. He, was a, uh, he is a populist and he had no plan for governance. Even though a lot of the so-called technocrats and other usual suspects that you've seen sort of cycle in and out of various governments, uh, in fact, there was, you know, if you go and compare it to the, 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 the cabinet of Musharraf and the cabinet of Imran Khan, uh, it's surprising to see so many similar faces in, in both governments. Even despite all of that, Imran Khan did not perform and in fact engaged in uh, politics of sort of, I wouldn't call it retribution, but just going after his opponents, uh, trying to completely uh, annihilate them, if you will, uh, to the point that they are no longer a political you know, actor uh, in the country. So spent his time on that and the, the country suffered economically, uh, financially. And uh, at the same time, he messed with geopolitics. He, you know, complicated exponentially the already complex relationship that Pakistan had with its main great power ally partner, the United States. Uh, he messed up the relationship with the Saudis. Uh, he also upset the Chinese. And of course, you know, uh, it was on Imran Khan's watch that we saw, uh, you know, the Indians and the Pakistanis use air force against each other for the first time since the 1971 war. This was in February of 2019. So this alarmed the the top brass, at least the army chief and his top associates, that hey, uh, did we do something wrong here? Did we get the wrong guy in, uh, you know, in the most important job in the country? And they started to they were counseling him, trying to get him to sort of see their their logic, but he wouldn't have any of it. And in the end, they decided that, you know, this is just too much. We can't be supporting something like this because we're getting blamed. For the first time in the history of the country, the common man started to call out the military for foisting this person on the country, and they were held the military responsible for. As you know, in any country where the military dominates politics, the civilians are fall guys in the, to insulate the military from any public critique. That was the case in Pakistan. But in the last four years, that was shred to pieces because people in the heartland, in the military's own heartland of Punjab, the core province of the country, people were openly, and there's, of course, the social media effect, criticizing uh, the military and uh, main opposition leader Nawaz Sharif came out, you know, uh, thunderously, uh, in a rally a few years ago, uh, saying, calling out the army chief and the head of the ISI by name. And that created a social wave 
and 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 it became you know kosher if you will or halal to go <laughs> after these people and so the military distanced itself and and decided enough was enough and then Imran Khan also uh you know got into an argument a quarrel with the army chief over the appointment of the uh, chief of intelligence this was last summer and uh, late summer early fall and they were looking at afghanistan and they were looking at, at everything going south and they said you know what we need to pull back and if the opposition can engine uh, engineer a vote of no confidence against imran khan then so be it because this is detrimental to our institutional imperatives this is detrimental to the national interest and so we're still in that storm you know we're what we're you know 9 months out from that uh, that process that began late last summer early fall and we're s still reeling from it and with Imran Khan now having turned against the military for the first time sorry I'm taking too long but no, I wanted good. your listeners to actually go through sort of you know the context here for the first time now, there is a discernible divide within the military leadership between those who are still very sympathetic to Imran Khan because they hate the you know his opponents or mm. uh, or or you just you know don't want them anywhere near governance, uh, and those who are you know let's say pursuing a real politique approach where they're saying yes this was our guy and but he's now you know biting the hand that fed him so we need to distance ourselves and you know become quote neutral in fact the world neutral and neutrality has become a joke in the country and people have become cynical because the military used it uh, and then the military spokesman said no 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 neutral isn't the word we're apolitical so i'll stop <laughs> right there um, well, first of all, when you say that Pakistan's hit rock, hit rock bottom, I, I start to wonder if there's an opportunity then, because if it really has hit rock bottom, I mean, there's a lot of potential in Pakistan uh, if you can get through the storm. But the the question I wanted to ask was, um, and maybe this is just a semantic thing, maybe, and you'll tell me this. Um, I mean, Imran, Imran Khan was removed constitutionally. Um, the military didn't take him out. It, and it, if correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was the first time that a Pakistani leader was removed via the constitution, via the actual political process. Now, maybe you're going to tell me that the military is behind all that anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But was there any part of the way that Imran Khan was kind of defeated in his attempt that gives you some optimism that there might be progress? Is there any scenario in which Pakistan emerges out of this maybe a little bit stronger and more coherent because it's actually facing some of these issues that it's just kind of let marinate for so long? Or are we at the beginning of what you think is going to be a very messy process and we should be worried about, you know, all other kinds of instability coming from these fighting factions within the Pakistani government? You always have such great questions. <laughs> so, um, yes, you're absolutely right. So there is opportunity here and you're absolutely right that for the first time in the history of the country, uh, a prime minister was removed through a constitutional process. Uh, the military's involvement, to the extent that I can discern, is that they just stopped supporting the prime minister. What does that mean? That means is that all those allied political parties were told that they are free to decide who to support, and there was no pressure from the military on them uh, to continue to support Imran Khan in parliament. Hence, the numbers that the opposition was able to cobble up, uh, you know, the magic number of 172 
to, um, you know, successfully remove him through a vote of no confidence. Uh, so there is no military involvement in that. In fact, the, the military, I would argue, uh, really sort of sort of took a step or a couple of steps back and said, hey, you know what? Uh, we've been holding this together because we have been influencing this from behind the scenes. Let's just pull back. And this is probably the neatest way to get this uh, you know, toxic situation under control and mm-hmm. remove Imran Khan because he's not listening. He's continuing to, even while being prime minister, he beha- he's behaving like an opposition leader who's just sort of engaging in, uh, you know, the populist rhetoric. Um, there, in fact, there's so many similarities between what how Imran Khan has behaved and how former President Donald Trump behaved here in the United States. Um, uh, Donald Trump refused to accept the election of 2020. Uh, we had January 6th, the rioting there. We've had something mm-hmm. similar in Pakistan. I would say it's probably more egregious where Imran Khan came out and basically accused a sitting assistant secretary of state for South and Central Asian affairs at the State Department of being the mastermind of a mm. coup against him yep. and adding more, you know, uh, fuel to the the fire that is U.S.-Pakistani relations. And so uh, Imran Khan went after the, the judiciary, went after the military. Uh, never have we seen a sitting army chief being ridiculed and literally cursed out on social media. Uh, all of this was the information operations capability uh, that Imran Khan had developed over the years. Because you have to understand, his constituency is the urban youth, urban educated middle class youth that is very tech savvy. And this was his, you know, his strong point, his ability to capture the imagination of these people and get them to actually mobilize and uh, put together a very sophisticated information operations campaign. So I think that that shows that there is hope. I mean, the other thing is that Imran Khan refused to allow the vote of no confidence to take place. Everybody was thinking that if this continues, if this standoff continues, then, uh, you know, we're going to look at a military intervention, a direct military intervention uh, to do a reset, if you will. Nothing Mm -hmm. of that sort happened. In fact, it was the matter was taken to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled 5-0 in favor of the vote of no confidence proceeding as is required by the Constitution. So I think that was a good moment. That was a good moment where the military did not have to intervene at, when you have these kind of log jams. Uh, and I think that that is a positive sign. Now, that's one thing, but the you know Imran Khan is still destabilizing while sitting in opposition. Right. And the question is, can the country get back on its feet financially? And that's where the IMF negotiations are very, very critical. Mind you, all uh, donors to Pakistan, including the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Chinese, uh, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, all of these actors that have historically supported the Pakistani economy and are still willing to do so are holding off because they want to see an IMF deal go in place before they send their cash you know, assistance over. So mm. uh, that's and, – and this government is hanging by a razor-thin – majority in parliament and it's made up of nine political parties is a coalition government of opposition forces uh what's held them together is the you know that they're against imran khan 
And beyond that, they don't have much in common. Uh, and so the question is, can they hold together? Can they uh, move towards uh, stabilizing and getting that that uh, that deal with the IMF that will provide for that financial respite, and at the same time, not damage their uh, you know political capital in the country, uh, because with the IMF deals, you have you know the the inflation that's already pre-existing increases big time, which it is uh, as we speak, uh, especially with the fuel subsidies coming off. Uh, and so that th- that's going to hurt this this government and its constituent political parties. Mm-hmm. You know they don't want that to happen. So there's uncertainty. Should they go for elections? Should they go for elections in three months? In six months? So we're really in a turbulent situation, and with the divide within the military, for the first time, that force that used to stabilize Pakistan when everything else was going to you know, um, in the wrong direction, i.e. the army, it itself is divided. Its ecosystem is divided. You have, you know, prominent ex-generals coming out, openly writing and coming out, doing rallies in the country, coming out on television, taking to social media, criticizing by name the current army chief and, and his supporters, and bitterly so. We haven't seen this. So, there's a there's a great deal of uncertainty, and the next several months to a year is going to be critical to watch. Do you think they'll get the IMF deal? I think they will. I think they 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 just have to sort of stomach it, and the the, the IMF deal, uh, at least this this coalition government led by the opposition to Imran Khan, uh, is hoping that they get the deal. And they are able to continue to be in government for the full duration of this, you know, five-year term of the parliament, which ends mm-hmm. next summer in 2023. So their thing is, okay, we're going to do some tight belt, uh, belt tightening here. We're going to get, you know, yelled at and, and we're going to incur the wrath of the public initially. Uh, but eventually, when comes time for election, uh, we'll be able to bounce back and provide for you know, performance, and we can show something that when we go to the ballots, we're not going to get hit massively, and we're actually going to retain our, uh, you know, our vote bank. Mm-hmm. But the question is, can they? Can this parliament, you know, because mil- the military has its interest. By the way, the military is undergoing a, uh, a leadership change come November. The current army chief, controversial uh, General uh, Kamar Javed Bajwa, who is brought Imran Khan to power, then Imran Khan turned against him, and he's been the target of his own institution and its wi- wi- uh, wider ecosystem, uh, is uh, due to step down. And so who takes over, who appoints the next army chief, who becomes ISI chief, who, which of the generals uh, get the top positions in, the, you know, in that elite group of corps commanders and principal staff officers, that's all unknown at this point. So again, you know, this is we're on a roller coaster uh, ride that is not stopping. Yeah. Um, okay, that's Pakistan. Um, Kamran, why hasn't there been a return to the Iran nuclear deal between Iran and the United States? I said at the beginning of the year I thought it was going to happen. I'm beginning to doubt myself. Um, where are you at with with Iran and specifically with Iran-U.S. relations and the nuclear deal? I think it has to go back to domestic politics on both ends. Uh, there is 
just no way that the Biden administration, especially after the disastrous withdrawal or the com- disastrous completion of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, can cut a deal uh, with the Iranians, especially in a year of midterm elections, uh, and be able to you know survive politically uh, at home. And 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 the situation is very perilous. I mean, look at what happened in the last election. Look at where the Democratic Party is right now. Look at you know how. Uh, the approval ratings of uh, President Biden stand. You look at all of that, and does the Biden White House want to go into another deal that the Republicans are going to be able to basically take to the bank when it comes to you know milking it electorally? Uh, second of all, uh, giving more cash to Iran at a time when it's already has its you know geopolitical fangs deep in the region in the arab world from yemen you know that whole arc going all the way to the eastern mediterranean that's bad and has created a rupture between uh our arab partners saudi arabia and uae uh and it sends a message to the region that you know they the united states has basically washed its hand hands of of the middle east uh, because it's a trend line. You withdraw from Afghanistan, that's ugly. You cut a deal with the Ira- Iranians, and if you give them, if you if you give them what they want, and there's no good deal, that's the problem. There is no good deal. It has to be better than what Obama did in 2015, the JCPOA version 1.0. If the Biden White House cannot show and demonstrate that this second nuclear deal is better. And in a convincing way, and they don't have to just convince the American public, they have to convince the Arab world and the Israelis, uh, and of course, the Turks as well. Then you're looking at, you know, at the very least, the Biden White House, you know, you know, signing its own electoral death warrant, if you will, and then undermining U.S. interests uh, in the region. We're already, you know. Yes, we've gotten some, you know, good mileage out of supporting uh, Ukraine in the war with Russia, uh, but overall, the United States, you know, is is looking very weak uh, uh, on the global front, and perceptions matter. So I don't think that there is a formula, uh, at least until the midterm elections are over, uh, that the Biden White House can comfortably sign off with the Raisi government. Likewise, the Raisi government knows that, look, even though they're really constrained and they have their own compulsions, they're really hurting, and they're going through an, a, a, a pending trans, uh, transition as well with Khamenei over 80 and you know the, the expectance that he will pass at some point. So, But they know and that the U.S. Is, uh, is in a bind, and they're trying to milk this, so they're not budging and compromising. And then there is the question of the Revolutionary Guards. Do we keep them on the, you know, prescribed list of, you know, terrorist organizations uh, or do we let them go? If you let them go, you know, like I said, it'll be really bad politically for the Biden White House. Um, If uh, they don't, there, you know, there are others, I'm, you know, from what I've heard is that, you know, the Biden White House is being told or at least advised that, look, you know the the age of the clerics is over uh, in in uh, in Iran. You don't want to, you know, 
uh, annoy or or not engage with the guards because they're going to be running uh, Iran down the road, and you don't know how quickly that can happen because mm-hmm. nobody knows the actual state of the health of Khamenei. That's a depressing answer. Geopolitically, let's let's get away from the political constraints for a moment because I think you're you're right about a lot of those. Is it geopolitically smart for the United States to try and get the Iran nuclear deal back up, or has that ship sailed? I think that it's. I think that there is no good solution. I don't think that it's smart in the way it's being done because the whether it's the Obama JCPOA or whether it's the efforts of the Biden White House. Um, and we can include what President Trump was trying to do with his policy of maximum pressure. I think that there is no solution uh, to uh, a deal on the nuclear issue that does not allow Iran to be more empowered uh, in the region. So nobody is really addressing the issue of the imbalance of power in the Middle East. Uh, yes, you know, we talk about the ballistic missiles and, you know, we get pay lip service to the idea of malign r- Iranian interference in the, in the Middle East, but that's about it. It's n- we're still so focused on the, the nuclear aspects that, hey, can you stop enrichment? Can we not get you, can we push you away from breakout? We're so much into that nuclear space that, quite frankly, we're not, Geo, we're not looking at Iran geopolitically. We're, it's almost as if we're sort of looking at it tactically and only from the lens of nu- nuclear weapons. Um, we don't have a solution for that. Yes, we can, you know, we, we can work with our allies. I mean, our relationship, and I wrote a piece in, uh, on this uh, in Newsweek last, last Thursday, I think, that uh, how the relationship with the U.S. and UAE has floundered because of this issue. Uh, there's a lot that can be done to strengthen uh, the Arab world, but it's not going to happen as fast as the nuclear deal will be cut. So geopolitically speaking, this is you know that geopolitical pickle, if you will, for the United States. There's no good solution here. Do you think that U.S.-Iranian relations will just continue to be bad for the foreseeable future? Is there any prospect of improvement, or are they just going to be on opposite sides of the equation? I think so long as the Iranian regime is out to alter the regional security architecture of the Middle East, um, then we will always be at odds with them. Um, If they can... And and this is these things don't happen, you know, uh, in the short term. So as I mentioned, we're looking at a transition uh, away from the clerics. My sense is that as soon as the power of the 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 IRGC or the military uh, and, and you know the, centered around the Revolutionary Guards, they become sort of the center of gravity of power in the Iranian Republic. And the clerics become secondary. And again, it's not going to happen fast enough. I, I expect some less ideological, uh, if you will, approach to Iranian uh, geopolitical interests on the part of the regime. I think the guards will want to become a bit more pragmatic. They want to make money. Um, I have heard this for many years that uh, 
the guards are looking at are not only upset that they do the heavy lifting for the republic yet they are beholden to the clerics who don't do much and so that balance of power is shifting can that lead to a rethink or uh if you will a more pragmatic i'm not saying they will moderate because i i don't think that anybody in iran where Iran is right now is just going to disengage from the region and say, hey, look, we're not interested in being the hegemon of the region. That won't happen. But can there be, can they look at, you know, things more pra- pragmatically and less ideologically? You know, over time, if that trend continues, uh, we could have some sort of a, a modest vivendi, if you will, in how we deal with Iran. But short of that, I don't think that we're going to see much change uh, in U.S.-Iranian relations. They will always be troubled. Even if the guards became very pragmatic, they're not going to give up their sphere of influence that they've built up. Uh, and they're continuing to you know, consolidate and, and expand. Um, the question is, can the Arab world and can the Turks build up capacity fast enough to where it really, U.S.-Iranian relations aren't sort of a bilateral thing, but we have a mechanism by which to contain Iran and its ambitions. I don't know. I don't know if, I mean, again, it doesn't, it won't happen fast enough. Uh, and and we there's so many unknowns uh, in terms of what will happen to, you know, the leading Arab states. How will Turkey, you know, behave? Because Turkey, if you look at it, is the only power, and you probably recall a piece I wrote for our, our New Lines magazine a couple of years ago on how the Middle East and, and, and that broader region is going to become an arena for Turkish-Iranian competition for the long haul. Uh, but currently, Turkey's distracted. You know, I already mentioned the, the South Caucasus. They're already, you know, looking at how, you know, to benefit from a Russia that has not achieved its goals in, in Ukraine and is, is, by all accounts, becoming a much more weaker power. So, uh, yes, the Erdogan just recently said, hey, we're going to have another intervention in Syria uh, that, you know, un- threatens Iranian interests. We saw what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. The Iranians are on the defensive there. But this is more long-term. And for the foreseeable future, I think... The United States will continue to have to uh, be directly involved, and 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 the regional players are not ready yet to to act as a counter to Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sobering. That's a sobering take, and uh, makes me makes me question uh, some of my analytical stances on Iran and the Middle East in general. Um, it is also. Ironic, fitting, I don't know what word to use there, that uh, the defenders of the revolution might be turning on the revolution itself, or at least on the clerics. Uh, it's, uh, you live long enough to see yourself become the enemy, I guess. Um, you, your talk about your, I mean, your comments about Turkey, though, was a nice segue for the last topic that we want to hit here, which is, um, what does the Russia-Ukraine war mean for all this? I, I know that you want to talk a little bit about Turkey. I think Turkey is, um, in some ways, has opportunities everywhere, but also has a pretty serious economic problem of its own at home. Um, and I think Erdogan is playing a very dangerous game with what he's doing with the Turkish economy. If he can get through it, he'll be much stronger. But 
you know, he's also got inflation over 70%, and he knows better than everybody else what that means because he came to power under similar economic circumstances. Um, and some of the polls are suggesting even in a place where uh, you know, Erdogan's government controls a lot of the levers. He's losing popular support, it seems like, and it doesn't seem like he's got inflation under control. So I'll let you take that in whatever direction you want. Um, what do you want to say about the Russia-Ukraine war and how it affects some of what we just talked about? Or do you want to focus on Turkey in particular? So I think that there's something to be said about, uh, and we've already talked about this earlier in, in, in the conversation, that the trend line for Russia is that it's not it's, it's becoming weak. And we already touched upon how its ability to project influence and power into Central Asia uh, is, is, is decreasing. Um, the performance of its military in Ukraine um, has been you know, surprising uh, for many. I mean, this is the second largest military of the world with its own indigenous industrial military complex. And the the poor performance really highlights just how chronically weak Russia is. I I remember just seven years ago when the Russians deployed jets and missiles in Syria that everybody was talking about how Russia is a rising power and look you know it's projecting influence from Syria to Libya uh, and um, you know people were thinking that this is going to be a major challenge. Um, and, and obviously, there were many of us who, who didn't believe that. But I think that it's all clear now that Russia is, uh, is leaving a vacuum. And in the, in the, in, in, in of particular interest to me is the Black Sea Basin. Because if, there, you know, if Russia cannot project influence, if it's been weakened, and you know, we've, there's been tremendous amount of conversation, the open sources about why that is the case because of the sanctions, because of the way that the United States and its European partners are arming the Ukrainians and how the Ukrainians have really resisted and withstood the pounding, uh, you know, that they have received. Our, we just published a report on um, how Russia has uh, engaged in herbicide uh, in Ukraine, you know, the destruction of urban infrastructure. Um, in, in other words, Russia can wreck Ukraine, but it, I don't think it can control Ukraine. Um, and, and I think Putin's best days are behind him. And this is a downward spiral. And there's going to be some evolutionary regime change in the Kremlin in, in, in the not too distant future. So if that's happening, then what becomes of, of the Black Sea Basin? Um, the other power that's already sort of you know, flexing its muscles um, is Turkey. Uh, and Turkey did that uh, in December of 2020 in that Nagorno-Karabakh war that really completely altered uh, the battle space in, in NK, um, where, you know, Armenia had the upper hand and Azerbaijan uh, was the, the defensive player uh, if we go back to the last war in 1994. And that whole landscape shifted because Turkey supported the uh, Azerbaijanis uh, with, you know, all sorts of assistance, particularly drones uh, that really, you know, played a pivotal role in, in, in the Azerbaijanis conquering uh, a large part of uh, territory of Nagorno-Karabakh that was in Armenian hands for many years. That happened, uh, you know, because... 
the Russians uh, didn't intervene or couldn't intervene. In other words, Turkey punched through a, 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 an area that was very firmly within the Kremlin sphere of influence. That, by doing that, they, they demonstrated that they are able to project power. And I'm, you know, it, it, one has to assume, that goes without saying, that there is no way that the Turks are not looking at, uh, you know, what's happening to Russia as an opportunity to basically reverse what happened in the 18th century uh, when the Ottoman Empire lost all its holdings in the Black Sea Basin uh, to the Russian Empire. And so... Uh, are we there yet? No, but you know, I'd like to l- take a look at over the horizon. Uh, it may be that Turkey, you know, does not control territories in in the way it did in 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 the medieval era, but it will have a lot of influence. So we're flexing muscles there. But as you rightly stated, Turkey has its problems. I mean, Turkey uh, is. Like I said, Putin's best days are behind him. I think Erdogan's best days are behind him too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gone as so far as he could. He's um, basically alienated a lot of his former comrades who are now forming you know, their own political parties. These are stalwarts of the Justice and Development Party that Erdogan has led. Uh, and you know, nobody lasts forever. Um once he's no more, then the question is, what happens to the Turkish Republic? Uh, it used to be very Kemalist in, in the sense that it was military dominated. Will the military uh, you know, resurrect its influence in the political system? At the very least, uh, the AKP's, you know, if you will, control over the share of the electorate uh, we've, we're already seeing that dissipate. So we're going to see a return to sort of an era of coalition governments. And so then under that domestic political situation, uh, which would you know have its hands full with trying to revive the economy that uh, Erdogan has wrecked in the process of you know building you know his own vision of Turkey, uh, then what wh- how does that shape? Turkey's geopolitical behavior. Um, they thought that they would have a better standing in Syria. They don't. Um, yes, they've seen success in the South Caucasus. Um, to what degree can they expand into the Black Sea Basin uh, with Russia sort of retreating, if you will, or weakening? Uh, but then there is this strange behavior that has been taking place over the last few months with the, you know, uh, if you will, uh, complete U-turn on the part of Erdogan as far as the Arab world and the Israelis are concerned. He's been going out meeting with the Saudis. He's traveled twice since February to UAE to reestablish those relationships. Um, he, he wants to have a better relationship with the Arab world and Israel. So that tells me that he's mindful of the constraints that his country is in financially and you know you know in general geopolitically. So again, Turkey is um, is going to be an interesting place to watch, both domestically and uh, regionally, uh, and in multiple regions. You know, you have the Arab world, you have the Black Sea Basin, you have the South Caucasus, uh, and even Central Asia, as we discussed earlier. So 
Turkey is another player that's sort of spinning in ways that we've not seen. So the normal that Turkey ha- has become ever since the, you know this Erdogan Republic, if we can call it that, emerged in you know the the mid two thousands. I think that's about to change. I think that there's we're looking. We should be looking at a post Erdogan uh, Turkey. Well, I'll, I'll I'll get you out of here on this. The last question: uh, Will Erdogan be the le- the political leader of Turkey on January first, twenty twenty four? Ah, you know you're uh, you're asking me to forecast the the physical lifespan of <laughs> of a political leader. It's very difficult to do that. Look, you know. Um, well, well, no, that, that that's a good point. Let's assume he's healthy. Assuming that he doesn't have a heart attack or doesn't have some kind of health problem, will Erdogan be the leader of Turkey, whether that's president or behind the scenes or whatever? Will he be the one calling the shots on January 1st, 2024? I think that it's possible that he might be the leader uh, of Turkey. It is possible. It's, I, in fact, I would say it's even likely, but I don't think he will have, he will be, his power would have been clipped. Everything depends on the elections next year. You know, what happens to parliament? Obviously, uh, he is secure as an individual uh, uh, in terms of holding on to the presidency. Uh, he's converted the system from a parliamentary democracy into a, you know, into a presidential system with him at the helm, and it, the country has become increasingly autocratic. Uh, but I, you can st- he can stay at the helm for the next couple of years, but the question is. Will he have the ability to shape Turkey the way he wants? We're already seeing that that is not possible. I just mentioned how there's a complete U-turn in the attitude towards the Arabs and the Israelis. And I think he's reacting to the Abraham Accords. I think mm-hmm. he's reacting to the fact that his economy is has tanked severely and he needs to uh, reduce tensions uh, and and prepare for... Uh, a world in which Russia is weaker um, and a Europe that is dealing with uh, Ukraine, a United States that's uncertain, uh, you know, to put it mildly. And, uh, you know, there's Iran and, you know, there's the domestic politics uh, of, of Turkey. So I think that, yeah, he can be leader. I can... Uh, I don't. I don't. I can't see any uh, any reason why he absolutely won't be leader. Um, but let's say you know health continues to be as it is right now. Um, yeah, but can he influence? And what kind of challenges will he face in parliamentary elections? You know, how much popularity will there be? I mean, you know, will there be some you know foul play in the elections? Because that's what autocrats tend to do. When they, you know, when they are out of sync with public sentiment, will mm-hmm. that happen? Can that happen in Turkey? Uh, I, I never say never, uh, but it's going to be difficult. So I think that the the political noose on Erdogan is tightening, so he can be there. But you know, what goes, good is it to be president if you are, you know, constrained? Yeah. All right, Kamran, this was great. Let's not wait another six months until the next time. Okay, my friend? Absolutely. All right, cheers. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. You can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.